fellow baritone. What's shaking? I think I'm more of a bass, but yeah, I got. Oh uh, yeah, beg your pardon. Yeah, well, I was going to say. I mean, I did. I was reading that you were uh, you were a radio host up at Michigan Tech. Yeah, I did four years of uh, radio. We had um, a show up there where we played hip hop in the Upper Peninsula. It was very popular. uh, (laughs) Hip hop (laughs) Upper Peninsula. That's a fun thing to say. Yeah, we we uh, the first year was uh, George Bush doesn't care about the UP, (laughs) and um, the other year was G Unit, as in like knitting. (laughs) It was fun. We played some good music. Well, this is great. It's very rare that I'd uh, have a guest on the show that uh, actually makes me look like the alto. <laughs> I don't know about that. I think we're. I think in terms of tone, they would have a hard time telling the difference. <laughs> well, I, let's I, don't, do I your don't best. Know if you're trying to figure out who's talking what. <laughs> Usually, it's easier to distinguish who's talking on the show, but now we've got uh, we got a guy who makes me feel like a castrato by comparison. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it sounds like a lot of these platforms, they've either established a level of complacency or they're just leaving themselves being way too vulnerable to be rendered obsolete just because they're not making it easy for customers to be a part of their ecosystem. I mean, you'd think now, especially with changing economic times, I mean, this entire investment vehicle was invented during a boom cycle. And we're now seeing like the first real retraction since the Jobs Act some 11 years ago. And their reaction is to make it super hard to get onto their platform. And once you get on there, they ignore you. I just, I don't get how they're even going to be around in a couple of years. I, I don't think they will be. That's, that's the short answer. You, you. Unless they're bought, unless somebody decides to buy them and overhaul them. Yeah. But what's the value? Why would you buy something like that when you can just spin it up on your own? If you think you do it better, I think right now. Well, you think Goldman or something would like buy one of these things and, you know, if, if one of them were successful, I, if one of them had a successful plan, was able to demonstrate that they could put things through in a reasonable way, have reasonable deal flow and generate reasonable income from that deal flow, then yeah, they're an attractive buy. But if you have a bunch of dissatisfied customers, you have the process be wonky, you're not in regulatory compliance, it's not an attractive thing to purchase when you can, in theory, set it up on your own much more effectively. And I think that's where we're at right now in terms of the technology and the platforms. are all trying to figure out what's the best and brightest way to do this. And there, there's going to be a bunch of stumbling. They're all figuring out how to, how to crawl still. And I, I think that crawling phase is probably going to happen for another year or two. And and in the meantime, a bunch of the firms are going to go belly up. And that's that's just, you know, how the cookie crumbles. Same thing with like, you know, transitioning over to Facebook. You know, we had MySpace, we had message boards, we had news groups, we had all kinds of stuff before Facebook until Facebook sort of perfected that recipe. And even that recipe is arguably not perfected. Now there's Instagram, there's TikTok. There's there's more refinement in that technology platform and what the value is that they offer. I think it's going to be the same way for these crowdfunding platforms. I think people do want to invest in things they understand. Like that's the best thing to invest in is in something you understand. So the ability to allow individual retail investors to participate in industries that they understand on platforms that they trust and you know make bets and investments the size that they think are appropriate for them i think is a big deal and i think it's something that's fundamentally american because you can allow everybody to participate to the extent that they're able to based on their resources like that's 
you know, it removes the private equity barrier of you need to be rich to participate in private equity. It shouldn't be that way. Yeah, I think so. And well, it shouldn't be. I mean, the whole point was to uh, open up investments to people who aren't necessarily accredited investors or don't have five figures to spend, you know, and it just seems like as everything else, anything that's meant to disrupt will eventually be absorbed and order will be restored to the universe. At least only only once wealthiest people, only once that business is relatively perfected, whatever that means. right? Right. So it needs to be generating income. It needs to be generating revenues. It needs to be growing. It needs to be scalable. It needs to have bigger applications that it currently has than it currently has, and be able to be scaled out and blown up. You know, the Chipotle McDonald's story. McDonald's owned most of Chipotle for a while. Chipotle was like 10, 20 restaurants at the time. They blew it up into 500 some restaurants, and they they did it all with you know their infrastructure, their uh, their knowledge, talent, all employees, uh, distributors, all of that stuff. And then they made Chipotle successful, and then they spun it off and, and sold it off and made a bunch of money on the deal. Like they there needs to be something like that where you you have a good product. They don't have a good product yet. Like the I, I get the general sense that the investors aren't happy, that the people who are um, listing the businesses on those platforms aren't happy, and they'll figure it out. But they haven't figured it out yet. Yeah. And speaking of enormous piles of Mexican food, you are listening to the successfully funded podcast brought to you by Kiwi Tech a growing ecosystem of entrepreneurs, investors, mentors, accelerators, incubators, and corporations. We help early and growth stage startups build viable products, drive traction, raise capital, and scale their businesses. Now, before we get started with our discussion with Numeric, a brief disclaimer, KiwiTech is not acting as a broker, dealer, or investment advisor, and is not registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission in any such capacities. At no time does KiwiTech provide investment advice, endorsement, analysis, or recommendations with respect to securities. Information contained herein should be viewed for entertainment purposes only. KiwiTech does not verify or assure that information provided by any issuer offering its securities is accurate or complete, or that the valuation of such securities is appropriate. Investing in securities, particularly in securities issued by startup companies, involves substantial risk and investors should be able to bear the loss of their entire investment. Those are the greatest hits of the disclaimer. You can find the full disclaimer on our podcast website, successfullyfundedpodcast.com slash disclaimer. Now, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about Numeric today, which has developed the Capnospot, a lightweight, portable, and disposable medical device that allows visual detection of gases with a real-time confirmatory color change during treatment of tension pneumothorax, which is also known as a collapsed lung. And we're here with the founder and CEO, Jonathan Aho. John, welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me, Doug. I appreciate uh, the opportunity. My pleasure. I really enjoyed writing about this over the past few weeks, getting to know you and figuring out how uh, Capnospot could kind of just become the most ubiquitous, normal, no-brainer thing. It just kind of comes across as that because, as we've seen from movies like Three Kings, treating a collapsed lung is complicated. And by the way, that movie came out in the 90s, and so I realize I'm dating myself. But it's a David O. Russell film, and, you know, if you're not a fan of David O. Russell's films, again, you might not be a fan of David O. Russell. I know a lot of actors aren't, but the man makes a good film, and maybe, you know, if you haven't seen any of those, you should, and if you don't like them, then we probably can't be friends. 
<laughs> it's a good film for sure. It um, absolutely is. But it's about when you have a collapsed lung, if it's serious enough, you have to actually puncture the thoracic cavity and release the carbon dioxide that has not only escaped the lung, but is now filling up the cavity and putting pressure on that lung. And the only way to do that until now is to listen and confirm that the gas is escaping, which strikes me as remarkably scattershot in a time among scientists and medical professionals to have to deal with something that subjective. The procedure has been around for, for a very good period of time. Thoracentesis or needle thoracentesis or thoracostomy or needle decompression, whatever you call it, they're all essentially the same procedure. You're you're allowing a path for air or fluid to escape from the pleural space, which is the space between the lung and the, the chest wall. That, that space can progressively fill up and it, it, you can have it build up with fluid and that's called a, a pleural effusion. You can have it build up with air that's called a pneumothorax. And then in certain instances, particularly in trauma, you can have that air progressively build up in that space and not have anywhere it can go, but it continues to escape from the lung. And it essentially chokes you from the inside of your chest. The air puts pressure on the center of your chest uh, on the inside. There's a column there called the mediastinum that has the, the esophagus, the trachea, the heart and the heart structures. And your, your heart has four chambers to it. And the lower pressure chambers are susceptible to being collapsed. They have fairly low pressure. And so if you have enough pressure in the pleural space, you can actually overcome the pressure in those lower pressure chambers and the heart can't fill up. It's a regular pump. If it, it can't fill up with blood, it can't empty of blood. And if you can't empty blood into the rest of your body, you pass away. So the standard treatment here is you put a thoracostomy catheter essentially a medical grade straw in the pleural space to let the air escape. In the pre-hospital setting, you really don't have x-ray, you don't have ultrasound, you don't have a lot of the hospital-based technologies that you would need to know that you did the procedure correctly. So you're relegated to using a gush of air and then monitoring vital signs to see if you did the procedure correctly, which is, if you imagine, you know, listening for a quiet really a whisper of air on a battlefield in an ambulance in a helicopter. That's yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's way to do that. so yeah, many options to screw it up for sure. Yeah, it's very susceptible to, to having, having you know, screw ups. And somewhere around 20 to 50% of the time, the procedure based on the data has failure. And the issue, that often, holy yeah, it's pretty often, it's somewhere between a fifth and a half of the time, depending on what data you look at. I think it's probably closer to a fifth. That's amazing. Those are the things they don't tell you about. Yeah. And the, the issue here is you don't know if it worked or if it didn't, because you didn't hear the gush of air in that environment. So you look And back if it doesn't work, what do you do? You do another one. Yeah, you do another one. You, you got some busted, the same perforations same. throughout his chest cavity and yeah. Yeah, and if you want a coin to get heads and you have about a 50-50 odds of getting it, you just flip it four or five times. And so <laughs> these these patients end up with four or five needles uh, going into their chest and you don't know if all of them worked, if none of them worked, if some of them worked, and you, you just have no idea. So then Spot is a result of an inspiration, basically saying this needs to be more than auditory. This needs to be visual somehow. So take me back to when that inspiration came about and how the current version of the Capnospot came to be in terms of the iterations and things. Yeah, so we, we came to the conclusion because patients were coming in with four or five needles sometimes in, in their chest, and we were trying to figure out 
why is this procedure not working the correct way? And we had also been doing the procedure ourselves in the, in the trauma bay intermittently while we would get set up for more advanced type uh, therapies like chest tubes and things of the larger bore straws, basically. And we came to the realization that the gush of air was essentially a lie. It can occur in quiet environments, and you can use that as a, as a reliable indicator in quiet environments. But the reality was you don't practice this procedure in a quiet environment. Yeah. And, and that air is carbon dioxide, right? It's like air you breathe out. It's not pure carbon dioxide. Right. It has about 4 or 5% by, by volume carbon dioxide, but significantly higher than room air that you breathe in, which has you know 0.01 carbon dioxide by volume. And that's what CapnoSpot detects, right? That's what turns... Yeah. Um, in fact, we never clarified this. The two colors are blue and yellow, but which color turns to which? Yeah, so it, it basically leverages pH. So CO2, just like you have a can of Coca-Cola, makes it more acidic than tap water, the CO2 in it. So yeah, I'm trying to remember my experiments with pH and litmus yeah, paper. Yeah, you put, put something in it, it dissolves the eggshell or, or whatever. The CO2 that is in there turns the paper from blue, which is the default state, to yellow, which is the, the indicated state. Gotcha. Zero okay. in the one. Mm -hmm. Now, did you have any control over that color scheme? Because my first thought, granted, I, I'm the guy who's like, thinking about, all right, what could go wrong here? And my first thought is like, what if you're colorblind? I mean, yeah, so, so that, are those that colors paper, particularly uh, de detectable for people of all types of uh, visual abilities? As, as far as we're aware, and that that is actually something we did take into consideration is uh, what's the preponderance of people who are colorblind in this population and, and things like that. The, the, the technology is actually repurposed from something we already use every day in the free hospital space, which is we put breathing tubes in and, you know, there's there there's two pipes that are side by side. One's the trachea, one's the esophagus, the windpipe and the food pipe, basically. Right. And sometimes when you're putting a breathing tube in, you get it in the food pipe and not in the windpipe. That's no. bad. Yeah. You don't want to have that happen. Then you're breathing no. into their stomach and their stomach's not meant for breathing. You want to breathe into their lungs. And so that, that technology is already used for that indication to know that you got it into the trachea or the windpipe and that your breathing tube is in the right spot. And we essentially repurposed that technology. That technology has been well validated. It's been around for forever and people have been using it for endotracheal tubes for a good period of time. And it's, it's the standard of how we put them, put those in. And so when you put your first iteration of the Capno spot together, is it very different from what you currently have in terms of how you set up the pH reaction? How many iterations of this tool have you had to put into place to make sure it's as foolproof as possible? The first one that we we did, I, I made it in the lab, put the indicator on there, dried it out, made it in, you know, breathed on it, made sure it turned color. So that was one iteration. That was the one that we used for the animal studies. So that's one. The next one we did in the human studies where we made it under the appropriate medical manufacturing conditions. But fundamentally... We're on, I guess, the third iteration now, but the, the fundamental indicator, which is the paper, that hasn't changed. Some of the housing has changed. The methods of production for the housing have changed. But but overall, it's functionally the same, same device that it, that it always has been since we came up with the idea. It sounds like it's such, such a simple no-brainer thing. I think it's a question of being a matter of time before this could be just a, a standard piece of gear that people have. And they'll wonder, why haven't we had this until now? It's lightweight, it's disposable, it's inexpensive. So when you put that together, what was the reaction when you first started suggesting that this would be a viable alternative than having to listen for a wisp of air in a war zone? 
So most of the people we've talked to are, are very supportive. They understand that using a gush of air in the pre-hospital space is, is not appropriate. We, we talk to paramedics, emergency medicine physicians, trauma surgeons, et cetera. They get it. And so it's a relatively inexpensive device. It should be easy to adopt. It's compatible with all of the existing medical grade straws, those thoracostomy catheters that we use every day. Use the standard fitting, same as what you use for an IV catheter fitting. So we think the barriers to adoption are relatively low for medical devices. That being said, there are plenty of people out there who just want to say no. Well, it's something extra. We want, don't want to pay you know, a reasonably low cost for this because it's extra cost. The argument here is not only are we going to make the patients better and safer and the procedure more effective, we're also going to make it so that they don't need to have four or five catheters put in, in on each patient. So they're going to save the cost of the extra angiocatheters, those, those straws that they're going to be using. So there's economic benefit here, but there's also direct patient quality benefits too. It's interesting that you started off with just tinkering in your own lab to build this thing. And uh, I didn't realize when we first met, you are actually as much of a, you're a medical professional, but you're also an inventor. How many patents do you possess right now? I think there's probably somewhere between 20 and 30 filed ones. Some of them didn't get past the provisional stage. I think there's probably somewhere between 15 and 25 ballpark uh, in terms of intellectual properties that are out there. Um, this one, I think, is the easiest commercial win, which is why the, this is the one that we've we've pursued. And do you remember what your first patent was and what inspired yeah, it? Yeah, the first patent was, um, so it's not uncommon in surgery for us to put uh, drainage tubes in. Like after a procedure, you have a, essentially another medical straw sticking out of you to wick fluid. Yes. Away. And so these tubes get clogged. And we said, this is so silly. Like these tubes get clogged and we can't unclog the tubes. So we came up with this idea. Basically, it's a kind of like a chimney sweep or a, or a drain snake sort of deal where it goes yeah. in there cleans out the uh, the tube and um, you, you don't have to send them to get their drain replaced or to interventional radiology or wherever they need to go to get their tube uh, replaced. Because the solution right now is replace the tube. It's not troubleshoot or declog the tube. And so that was the first one we came up with that 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 we thought had some legs to it but well yeah when in doubt get rid of goop i gotta say that's that's a big a common medical issue i would imagine given all the goop that medical professionals have to traffic in as they're treating us poor saps who are at death's door the human uh -oh. body is excellent at making goops <laughs> <laughs> and you got to distinguish between the good goop and the less good goop that is that's not supposed to be in, a, in one place but it is in another place like that's diagnosis of, of disease is figuring out which goops are in the wrong spot <laughs> so has that always been something you wanted to do were you always into goop to the point where you kind of were destined for the medical profession and now the inventor's not, profession not, not, not what's, what was your childhood like no not necessarily goop but tinkering and buying something used and making it like it's new again or having something broken and fixing it that's that's always been of interest to me, whether it be technology, hardware, you know, old pocket knives, watches, stuff like that, being able to to put something back into a state of functioning, whether it be mechanical or human, I think is is, is quite rewarding. And it just happens to be that you know there's a lot of medical solutions that you can come up with that are relatively straightforward that make people's lives better and or healthier and or longer. And how much of this comes from standard Midwestern frugality? 
A good amount, like <laughs> at least for the childhood part, definitely a good amount, you know, buying stuff at, at garage sales and, and figuring out how to put it back into good repair for sure. That that definitely was a Midwestern thing. Well, I'm interested in the upper Great Lakes area. As you know, we both live in it currently. And um, you went to Michigan Tech way up on the upper peninsula. So I'm I'm guessing that when you, you got to Michigan Tech more as an engineer, did you I have an idea you might go into medicine or once you got to Michigan Tech? Yeah, so I'm actually from Rochester, Minnesota, but I went to, as you pointed out, to undergraduate at Michigan Tech. My, my dad worked at IBM at the time, and I was going to do computer programming, computer software engineering type of you know training. And I came to the realization that I, I really just don't like writing code. It's not as human <laughs> interactive as I want it to be. And then I said, well, what else can I do? There's here? no goop either. Yeah, there's very well, not the, the goop. The goop came later, but uh, <laughs> I, I came to the conclusion that you know I really wanted to do something more interactive with people. And that ended up being medicine. I was going to be a dentist for uh, maybe six months. And I realized that, you know, that's a little too narrow for me. So I decided, you know, man, do I want to do this medical school thing or not? And then I went to the University of Minnesota to work with a couple of labs there and a couple of research groups there. And I said, this is more in my wheelhouse and end of interest. So that that sort of stimulated me to want to do pre-medical type stuff. I actually did mathematics and biology both at, at Michigan Tech and you know, finding those interesting areas of overlap between science and medicine and engineering are sort of where I've tried to be focused in terms of improving patient care. And that's what I'm still trying to do today. Well, and you did grow up in the shadow of the Mayo Clinic where you are now. So I would imagine there's something in the water and there in particular that inspires you to get back into medicine and take that Hippocratic oath and make life better for people, which is what the Capno spot is designed to do. So now let's talk about the current state of the Capno spot. You've done some research, you've reached out to uh, other medical professionals to try it out. When you developed it, and now that you're in the funding zone of trying to get this thing into more hands, how are you communicating your story to get it out to more people to try it out and recognize it as the next thing in, uh, in thoracic care? We're actively engaged in, uh, with various professionals, both on LinkedIn, on social media, over the internet, as well as in person, to uh, identify those early users. Who are those early adopters? Who are the people that are going to be champions and carry this thing forward in terms of demonstrating that it's actually better than what we do every day? That's really the end goal here, is prove that this is better than the gush of air. And once we have that that evidence proven, then it's a lot easier sell. We have good, you know, very convincing evidence currently for animals, for early human pilot studies, but we don't really have that true head-to-head -head versus the gush of air in the pre-hospital environment. So that would be, you know, useful information and useful ammunition from a commercialization perspective. There's a lot of other things that have to happen in order to get a uh, medical device on the market, even though this is essentially just color changing paper inside of plastic. You know, you still have to figure out how are we going to manufacture this? How many units are we going to need to make? What kind of manufacturing processes are we going to use? How is this device regulated? Once it's regulated, what type of testing do you need to do um, in order to justify meeting the burden for that regulation to be able to say that this is this is safe and it's not going to hurt anybody? It takes a decent amount of capital to do all of those testing regulatory type steps and to be able where you're able to manufacture this at scale and actually you know, make margin on a per unit basis. We submitted our 510K to the FDA in December. So we're, we're pretty quickly due back to here on, those, uh, on that particular aspect. 
our contract manufacturing, our manufacturing at scale processes are about eight ninths of the way done, nine tenths, somewhere in there. We're awfully close. And we think we're going to have this commercialized in the next couple of months here uh, with FDA clearance in place. And so we we're well positioned. We've been extraordinarily frugal with our capital. We're almost finished with our seed round here currently. And once we have that closed, we'll, we, we're ready to defer our commercial launch, but we're going to use distributors predominantly for channels. And then we're also going to have our own sales force that makes direct calls. Yeah, that FDA approval, I imagine, is a real hurdle that you have to overcome before the real rollout happens. Is that correct? Yeah, that's totally correct. It's it's unlawful to sell a medical device, you know, without FDA clearance in place or or registration, depending on what kind of device it is. But right, the, and, and the spectrum of things that are potentially dangerous to patients, though, this doesn't strike me as a particular issue. No. Yeah, there's three main medical device classes that are out there. We're in the lower of the classes in terms of how it's regulated, but it's it's still a regulated medical device, and there's certain quality standards and behaviors that the device has to exhibit in order to be sold. It sounds like the best way to get this universally accepted is to just show people how well it works. Is that the kind of thing that you're um, planning to do? Yeah. So there's two different ways to get it accepted as, as being the standard. One is that everybody just accepts that it's better than what's out there. That means roadshow, aggressive sales, aggressive marketing. Another avenue to do it is you roll out to select or limited sites or to early adopters where you have a little bit more supervision over making sure it's being used correctly in the correct settings in the correct way. And then once you've generated some evidence, manuscripts, publications, white papers, et cetera, that says the data here shows that this works better than the standard of care by, you know, X percents in terms of mortality, needle number of screw around in the pre-hospital ambulance reduction in time, you're able to show that it's better than what you're doing. And so once once you've shown that it's better than what we're currently doing, uh, you can get pulled into the guidelines and and overall broadly in the United States, people follow those guidelines. They're so-called rules of the road for how you practice medicine. So both of those are viable approaches. We're probably going to take sort of a middle road between the two, but we definitely um, are going to want to uh, get it out there to the commercial space and initially semi-limited rollout and then more and more broadly after that. And when you do name those booths at the trade shows, have you ruled out calling them Thoracic Park? No, so the the, the booth space. I apologize uh, for yeah, that we, in we, retrospect, we, we, but the, you uh, know, for the kids. The focus, for sure. <laughs> there, no, there definitely is a focus in the pre-hospital medical devices on chest decompression. I would say that the two leading things that people are innovating on right now are blood and blood transfusion in the pre-hospital space and uh, thoracic decompression. I think those are the two spaces that are of, of significant interest right now, bleeding and thoracic trauma. I was thinking about earlier when you were talking about your air pipe and your food pipe. Mm-hmm. And I know that you're marketing this to professionals who know what a pneumothorax is and recognize all of the jargon that you use as a standard that everyone in the profession, it's arcane to you, but it's universally used within your profession. As you expand, do you see the need to try to market this in a much less jargony way Among the people who are going to use this, your language is fine. But when you're trying to, as you said earlier, help investors figure out how to uh, invest in what they know, what do you see as the challenge as the CEO, as the chief communicator and chief cheerleader for this product? How do you adjust the way you speak to potential investors to make sure they're fully on board and understanding what they're about to invest in? 
in my mind, it's a question of know your audience. People understand people get injured. That, that's trauma. People understand that that you're not supposed to have air outside of your lung and in a space. You know, I, I don't call it the plural space when I would talk to an investor, you know, average person on the street. I'd say in between your lung and your chest wall, you can have an air buildup and that buildup can choke you from the inside of your chest. And right. people get that. They, they understand that. But like if you're talking to another medical professional, you know, it's very life-threatening to have a tension pneumothorax that can cause, you know, significant compression of, of mediastinal structures. Okay. Like they get that. There you go. <laughs> like there, there's, you, you need to. You're making me feel smarter as you uh, use that language, arcane jargon on yeah, me. Cause I, you know. Is, yeah. Pneumothorax means air chest just because it's in Latin. Like it, <laughs> there's a certain uh, errors put on about it, but fundamentally most medical problems are re- at least trauma problems are relatively straightforward problems. It's a question of what do you do about that problem where things get a little more complicated. And same thing for patients too. They, they don't have that on the average uh, extensive fund of medical knowledge. So if you're able to talk to patients well, you should be able to talk to investors well too. And I, I'm on the spectrum of things to explain to lay people this is probably, again, just like it's on the lower echelon of approval for the FDA. It's also... What yeah, we're, we're very fortunate it, right? in yeah. that the therapy itself is simple, too. And given that the therapy is simple, you put a angiocatheter into the pleural space. Okay, you put a medical straw into the chest. Okay, like right. <laughs> it's, it's a simple explanation for what you do for this air buildup. People understand. And then when you tell them that paramedics are making life saving or life altering decisions based on a gush of air in the back of an ambulance, most people inherently understand that that's silly. So let's kind of delve into the numbers a bit. I mean, you don't have to predict what your you know revenue projections will be, but it just in terms of how the revenue structure will evolve because they are disposable. And as I understand it, they're perishable, right? They need to be replaced. So if you think about how frequent a collapsed lung requires this particular treatment, how do you see your revenue stream developing just in the terms of how many you plan to sell and how frequently your customers need to return for more? That's actually a very insightful question. So Pneumothorax is not an everyday problem. It's a problem that happens highly variably across the world. Places where you have a lot of trauma, you have more tension pneumothorax than when, where you have places with less trauma. So the question of how often are people doing these procedures is quite frankly unclear. The uh, people that we've talked to, they're doing this procedure every few days to a couple times a week and, or maybe you know every couple of weeks in busier locations. In less busy locations, they're doing them, you know, once every few months. That being said, this is actually one scenario where a stocking equation for the market is appropriate. This isn't something you can order on Amazon and and wait for and say, all right, well, we're going to get this in a day or two. The patient's already dead by then. You need to have them ready and on hand. And that's that's already how these needle catheters are, are stocked. They have somewhere around five of these per ambulance. And when they use them, they use them. And when they don't, uh, they expire and they, you know, get new ones. That's accepted for this space. So we don't know what the breakdown is going to be versus reorders on the two-year shelf life versus reorders from actual use. But either way, you're still turning over half of the inventory every year just from shelf life alone. So better therapy, inexpensive compared to what we're doing already in terms of putting additional needles in, uh, subjective patient extra complications, not getting therapy right, potential lawsuits, et cetera, et cetera. 
versus getting it right the first time, which patients very much like when they're the patient and getting the procedure done properly and it's for very little additional cost. So this is kind of a, it's a volume play just in terms of hospitals having them on hand to be used or, and the military, we've mentioned that that's, you know, collapsed lungs happen on the battlefield. It's an inexpensive thing to make and there's not a lot of margin on them. I don't imagine how the are you- is, The margin is actually quite favorable, but you're right. It is completely a volume play. Things get much, much better when you're selling more of them. And that's really an issue of convincing people that this is better than what they're doing. The paramedics get it. The emergency room people get it. The people who count the beans, I think, are going to be convinced relatively straightforwardly compared to other medical products, but there's still some convincing that has to occur. The margins are good, but the product is not expensive. Therefore, you need to sell a good amount of them in order to you know, maintain profitability and revenue and, and have the viability for the business. So let's, uh, let's talk a bit about the view from the top of the C-suite. I mean, you're not unfamiliar with this perch. Because I think one of the first things it says about you on the website, which is numeric-medical.com. And numeric is a P-N-E-U-M-E-R-I-C. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so when did this first iteration of CapnoSpot happen? Oh, man. Probably back in 2017, I would think. Yeah, it's a good five, six-year period yeah. we're talking about here. So whenever there's that big a gap between when the idea first hatched and where you are now, if you were to go back to 2017, when this first iteration occurred and you were just blowing on pH paper in your lab. Mm -hmm. What do you think is different now about your position as the CEO of Numeric that you didn't see coming six years ago? What? Just how difficult and how complicated getting an idea from an idea and a minimum viable prototype. We know this works. It works the way we say it does, et cetera, et cetera. We know it's better than what we're doing, but Getting it from that point to how do we have a, a actual business built around this? How, how do we have the intellectual property in the right place? How do we have the funding in the correct place? How do we time out the steps that we're going to do and in what order? And how do we you know, manufacture these and how do we get them to the actual customers? There's a lot of logistics and a lot of thought experiments and scenarios and you know, I guess war games, if you want to think of it that way of how do you actually do all of the stuff now that you have a product or you are going to have a product at, at you know a certain date. But I'm glad we kept it internal to Mayo as long as we did, because that allowed us to do a lot of the de-risking maneuvers that I think happen sometimes a little too early in the industry or not, not, not early enough, or they should happen before a company is spun out where we did the animal studies and showed it worked better than what the standard of care is with novice and expert operators we did initial human studies showing that it you could be usable in the field by practitioners and all of those types of things where we could put those blocks into place and start to realize, okay, we're onto something here. Now is probably the time to turn it out, you know, spin it out as a business as opposed to, okay, we've got a bright idea and now we spin it out as a business. Well, we had a proven product before we did the business. Right. Yeah, I think you want to build on something that you have absolute faith in uh, and find the right rock to build your church. And when you think about speaking of that perspective as CEO, what keeps you up at night? What's the kind of thing that makes you concerned? Do you have potential competitors who might be able to uh, develop a pricing structure that uh, undermines yours? 
Is there a, a limit to the number of units you might be able to sell long term? You know how people thought people will just keep signing up for Netflix without realizing there's a finite number of people on the planet. Uh <laughs> So yeah, what about what sorts of things in terms of the trajectory going forward do you think most about and how how do you think you're going to respond to them if and when they occur? Yeah, so I think from a competitor standpoint, we're well protected from an intellectual property standpoint, or at least we think we are. There are That's some a good question. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, you you've been around the block with your patents at the time. So is this yeah, one we, of the- we like to think we're well protected and we filed additional IP around this to sort of extend the uh, patent life cycle on the on this a little bit. Is it possible somebody just flat out copies us? Yes, but we have a licensing agreement with Mayo that they would most certainly enjoin because the IP is still owned by Mayo, but we have exclusive license to it where they would enjoin us in potential litigation if that were to occur. So I think a flat out copy is unlikely. The thing that would bother me from a competition standpoint is somebody were able to figure out how to circumvent with another technologies. We have intellectual property around other methods of, of doing this too. But it's a possibility that somebody does that. The main risks, I think, are FDA risk. They can change their mind. That's unlikely that they do. They're very rule-oriented, which is good. They've done everything that they said they would so far. But there is always a potential risk that they could change their mind, come to a different conclusion, have a change of personnel, whatever may happen there. The other, I think, is execution risk, predominantly on the part of us working with distributors and making sure that the distributors are working with us and for us, and we're not working against them in any way and making sure that everybody is making money on the device that they're you know, selling and that all is working the correct way. I mentioned that as well, just because you may be aware we're building this, uh, this circle community among people who are either Kiwi Tech clients or not, uh, just to talk about their experience as CEOs or as entrepreneurs, as inventors, as visionaries, and to discuss the kinds of, of uh, successes and struggles that uh, CEOs experience over the course of their company's career, whether they get the successful exit, the more you know, the fewer mistakes you might make going forward. Obviously, not every business model is comparable, but it's really great to see the conversations becoming so much more robust on there. The uh, URL is uh, kiwitech.circle.so. And I'm always interested to learn more about how CEOs respond to something they didn't anticipate, which is always something. When you think about what the end game might be for a numeric and Capno spot, is there an exit in mind at this point? Is it premature to even think about so far? It's never too premature to think about. You should always be thinking about that kind of thing. The best way to get acquired is to make the business successful. So if you have a good business that's doing what it's supposed to, they're making money and there's evidence that they can scale or they will be able to scale with a strategic or a, a bigger player, then they're going to be a target for acquisition or you know some type of licensing arrangement, whatever it may be, um, some type of partnership. The companies that are already making this pH paper for that endotracheal tube, the breathing tube uh, support, they could potentially just license or buy us or whatever. And for the paper that they're already making, use our molding, use our regulatory, use our IP, and open up a whole other market segment for what they're already making. There's also the medical straw manufacturers, whether they be chest tubes, angiocatheters, whichever. That space is very saturated with re- relatively big players who have relatively undifferentiated product. One chest tube or needle is pretty comparable to the other one. And they could you know, steal market share from one of their competitors if they were able to bundle our device with theirs. So there, there's some obvious potential exits, but the best way to do that is just 
hit the ground running, be successful, make the sales, make the revenues and show that you could scale. And then uh, you're going to be attractive. Right. Especially since the real measure of attraction is how much you can really get those margins up. That seems to be the litmus test for any level of acquisition. It's like, I'd like you to do double the sales and double the margins with them, please. <laughs> it's yeah. like, well, all right, sure. No, no sweat. Well, I, as we wind down here a bit, let's talk about where people can find out more about Capno Spot and Numeric and what the company may be thinking in the short and longer term and how they can learn more about what Capno Spot is, if they have questions, how they could contact you. What's the best way to get a hold of you and talk more about the prospects for the company going forward? Yeah, best way probably to get a hold of me directly is to go on LinkedIn. Just search for Jonathan Aho. It's kind of spelled a little goofy, J-O-H-N-A-T-H-O-N. Jonathan Aho, but if you type it in there wrong, you'll it'll probably pull me up anyways. Or go to numeric-medical.com, P-N-E-U-M-E-R-I-C hyphen medical.com. Yeah, you spelled that a lot easier than I did for some yeah, reason. I, I have some practice. <laughs> um, our, our emails are all over the place and uh, on that website or on LinkedIn. And just reach out. We're available, affable, and, and able, and be happy to communicate with anybody who has interest. Available, in affable, and able. That's, uh, that's a, that's a, that's a doctor one. Way. That's a doctor one. Like that's the, <laughs> the keys to doctor successes are the three A's available, affable, and able. Amen. That we'd add a fourth A word to that uh, list. And they got four A's. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a perfect GPA, baby. Yeah, right. Um, Thank you for listening to this episode of the Successfully Funded Podcast. I have been your host, Doug French. That has been John Aho, the founder and CEO of Numeric, which is spelled in a way that he has spelled many times and you will find in the show notes. John, thank you for sharing your inspiration and your plans. And I wish you the best of luck. And as you know, I'll be following along and uh, hope to see what the next years bring to your company and your vision. Thank you, Doug. I appreciate the opportunity. All the best to you, man. And all the best to you. Thank you for listening. And we will see you in two weeks with our next episode of the Successfully Funded Podcast when we can learn more about people who are helping us all breathe easier. Bye-bye.